18. Lord Mayor, Alderman, and the Sheriffs offered to hold the field against all comers. The Chief of the Heralds and Minstrels had forty pounds given him for his services a large sum in those days. Richard I.I. held a great tournament in 1394, when the Earl of March and other nobles from Scotland appeared in the field, then, and for several years afterwards, there were several justs and combats between Scots and Englishmen. A remarkable combat took place in 1398 on London Bridge, a wooden structure broad enough to give room for the fighters and spectators. Sir David Lindsay and Lord Wells agreed to run courses on horseback for life or death, and this was done in the presence of kin and court. After a desperate struggle, Sir David Lindsay won. Again, there was a joust at Smithfield during the same reign, when the Queen gave as prizes to the most successful in tilting a gold coronet and a rich bracelet. At this tournament, too, there was a grand procession from the tower, in front there rode an array of minstrels and heralds, while along the streets flags and banners were displayed. The fifth Henry held several famous tournaments, and so did the fourth Edward. Edward Ivy had a tournament at Smithfield in which his queen's brother, Lord Scales, engaged the young Duke of Burgundy. They fought with spears, swords, and pole axes, until Lord Scales slightly wounded the Duke. It seems probable that tournaments at Smithfield ceased after the Wars of the Roses. It may be as well to explain the difference between a tournament and a joust. Justing, or tilting, was a frequent amusement. In this the knights fought with blunt lances, and each tried to break his opponent's lance or to unhorse him. But in a tournament they engaged with sharp weapons, and the combatants were often wounded, sometimes killed outright. The large open space in Street James's Park, next to the horse guards, was at first called the Tilt Yard, because of the tilting that went on there when our kings came to reside in Westminster. Heroes and heroines of famous books. Aye aye. The Dear Russellayer. Concluded from page 167. The Deer Slayer abounds in incident. One of the most thrilling adventures is that which befell floating Tom and Hurry Harry, who had so far forgotten what was due from their white man's nature as to plan to enter the camp of the Indians at night with the object of securing the scalps of unwary men, women, and children, and so obtaining the bounty offered by the government for each scalp. On one of these occasions, when they had gone ashore, they were taken captives by the Indians and came very near to losing their lives. They only escaped through the brave conduct of Hetty, the well-known straightforward dealings of Deerslayer, and the fact that hidden away in an old sea chest of hutters, amongst fine clothes and other relics, were some beautifully chased ivory chessmen, among them being four castles supported by elephants, an animal unknown by sight to the American Indians. When the grim old warriors who held Hutter and Hurry prisoners saw the little ivory animals, their delight knew no bounds. They were familiar with horses and oxen, and had seen towers, and found nothing surprising in creatures of burden. They supposed the carving was meant to represent that the animal they saw was strong enough to carry a fort on its back. It was fortunate for the prisoners that the old sea chest contained such treasures, had it been otherwise, they would probably both have lost their lives, they were not so fortunate when they fell a second time into the hands of the Hurons, who had secretly gained possession of Muskrat Castle, as Hutter's house had been called, this castle stood in the open lake, at a quarter of a mile from the nearest shore, there was no island, but the house stood on piles, with the water flowing beneath it. The lake in other directions was of a great depth, but just where the piles had been driven was a long narrow shoal, 
which extended a few hundred yards in a north and south direction, rising to within six or eight feet of the surface of the lake. Floating Tom had built his house strongly, while the position made him safe against attack unless his assailants came in a boat. One day when Hooper and his friends were absent from the castle, the Hurons took possession of it, and when Hooper and Hurry returned they knew that they had fallen into a complete trap. Only a short time previously, Hurry's reckless spirit had led him to commit an act of wanton cruelty, that of raising his gun and firing from the canoe in which he was seated into the woods, his random shot struck down an Indian girl, and caused her death, so that the Hurons felt no goodwill towards him. The Indians knew, too, that Tom and Hutter would have been only too willing to attack any of their party should it lie within their power to do so. Hurry, whose conduct towards his foes had been ferocious, was captured by means of a rope of bark, having an eye, which was thrown so dexterously that the end threaded the eye forming a noose and drawing his elbows together behind his back with a power that all his gigantic strength could not resist. A similar fastening secured his ankles, and his body was rolled over onto the ground, as helpless as a log of wood. Hutter fared even worse, for he was found by his daughters wounded, and in a dying condition. Oh, Judith, exclaimed poor, weak-witted Hetty, as soon as they had attended to the sufferer, father went for scalps himself. And now where is his own? The Bible might have foretold this dreadful punishment. A different scene is that which tells what befell Deerslayer when he fell into the hands of the foe. They had let him out on furlough, while knowing that they could trust his word. It was in vain that his friends in Muskrat Castle tried to persuade him that he was not obliged to keep faith with such a cruel foe. Deerslayer was firm. A promise to return had been given, and it must be kept. For God had heard it and God would look for its fulfillment, while he knew that the cruelties of the Indians would be practiced on him, and that he would be put to the tortures the young Indians, all of whom hoped to become warriors, would not, he knew, hesitate to subject him to such woes that even to read of them makes one's heart sink, yet this knowledge could not deter him from keeping faith with them, bound so tightly to a tree that he could not stir an inch. He was obliged to submit while the various young men of the Indian tribes threw their tomahawks so as to strike the tree as near the victim's head as possible without hitting him. His nerves stood the terrible test, and he neither winced nor cried out with fear. The second torture was that with the rifle, only the most experienced warriors taking part in this. Shot after shot was sent, all the bullets coming close to the deer slayer's head without touching it. Still no one could detect even the twitching of a muscle on the part of the captive or the slightest winking of an eye. But we will not continue to describe the tortures to which the brave Deerslayer was subjected, none of which could cause his brave spirit to quail. Hetty, whose feeble mind won for her the esteem and care of the Hurons who believed that the feeble-minded were under the special favor of the great spirit and able to endure the thought of what Deerslayer, their good friend, might be suffering, made her way to the camp of the foe carrying her Bible with her, and there addressed the chiefs and warriors assembled at the sports. They listened to her patiently and kindly for a time, but after a while bade her sit down, and proceeded with their dreadful work. In vain did Judith, dressed out in all the brocaded finery from the old sea chest, suddenly appear on the scene, telling them that she was a great mountain queen who had come in person to demand that Deerslayer be set free. Both the sisters' attempts failed and death would have been the lot of the good man had not troops from the nearest garrison arrived at the very moment when they were most needed, and so saved Deerslayer, the boy tramp, 
continued from page 163. I descended to terrible depths during those homeless days, and, at the lowest, when half starving, dirty, hopeless, it happened that I almost ran against Mr. Parsons. It was about a quarter to three, in Brook Street. He stopped abruptly, and stood gazing at me with an evident effort to maintain his usual expression of benevolence. Now, he said, smoothly, you will just make up your mind to come along with me. My lad, I know I won't, I answered. He stood with his hands on the crook of his umbrella, while his lower jaw moved as if he were trying to swallow something, but whether it was one of his favorite aniseed lozenges, or his indignation against myself, was more than I could tell. One thing, however, seemed certain, if he strove to hide his wrath, it could only be with the object of getting me once more into his power. Ah, Jackie, my lad, he exclaimed, shaking his head. You have not done much good for yourself since you turned your back on your best friend. A great mistake. Jackie a great mistake. Indeed. I must have looked very disreputable. A pair of grey trousers. Supported by one brace the other having given way some days ago a dirty shirt. Neither jacket nor waistcoat. And washed hands and face. Boots coated in mud. Hair which had not lately known a comb and brush it would have been difficult to find a grubbier street Arab within a few miles. Anything is better than living with you. I cried. He had drawn closer. But at the same time I took the precaution to edge away. Determined on no account to allow him to put a hand on me again. Don't be afraid. My lad. He said. I'm not. I answered. Though it was only half true. I don't want to hurt you. Jackie. He continued. In a wheedling voice. I want to be your friend. You look hungry. My lad. Now come along with me not home but to a nice little eating house I know. The hot joints will be just ready. Nice hot joints. Jackie roast beef and Yorkshire pudding, and apple pie to follow. It is waiting for you round the corner. Jackie, as much as you like to eat, and then we can have a nice quiet chat together. It appeared inconsistent, but the naming of these luxuries caused a feeling of something like temptation for the moment, which only those who have been in need of food can understand. While I knew that nothing in the world could induce me to accompany Mr. Parsons, still the mention of roast beef and Yorkshire pudding tickled my palate, and a great longing for something to eat came over me. I had tasted no food that day, and yesterday only a few scraps. Instead of answering, I turned my back, whereupon Mr. Parsons thrust out his umbrella, catching my right arm with its crook, while at the same time he grasped my left wrist with his disengaged hand. Now I had been conscious of a strange giddiness and weakness, with a tendency to let my thoughts wander, during the whole of yesterday and today, and at this moment the fear suddenly seized upon me that I might be unable to resist the man and consequently fall into his hands again, so raising my voice I shouted with all my might, police, police, and although no policeman appeared, two or three passers-by soon collected around us, while Mr. Parsons still gripped my wrist. Would some gentleman kindly call me a cab? Said Parsons, in a voice which might have deceived anybody. You will break your father's heart. Jackie, he continued, now come home to your mother without making any more trouble. You are not my father, I answered, still speaking as loudly as I could. You are a thief. You make false coin. And you lie that dot, cried an old lady, who formed one of the small crowd which by this time had collected. Here is a policeman at last and at the same moment I felt Mr. Parsons' grasp relax, pushing his way through the throng. He stepped into the middle of the road, 
stopped a passing hansom, entered it and was driven off, while the old lady intercepted the policeman, I seized the opportunity to get away, turning my steps towards Hyde Park, where I sat down on a seat, now I began to find a difficulty in keeping my eyes open, my chin constantly dropped onto my chest, and then I would wake again with a start, I seemed to be living again through all that had occurred since I left Castlemore, again I was selling the silver watch and chain at Broughton, while the tramp gazed at me through the window, again I was being pursued along the main road, sleeping under the tree in the wood, robbed of all I was possessed in the chestnut plantation, once more I was awakened after a short sleep by Mr. Baker's dog, Tiger, and taken to the cozy farmhouse with the red blinds, where Eliza gave me food and a comfortable bed in which I dared not lie down to rest, because I knew that Mr. Baker would be certain to carry me back to Ascot House the following morning, then again I was racing across fields, floundering into damp ditches in the darkness, sleeping in the shed, and afterwards helping a bicyclist to blow up his tire in the country lane, once more I seemed to be lying prone in the cornfield, while Mr. Turton inquired whether Mr. Westlake had seen me and Jacinta was looking down from the other side of the hedge at the same moment. I was sleeping in the empty house on the forest, and shivering at the weird, ghostly sounds in the night, I was again delighted to make friends with Patch, and regretful to have him taken away from me by the fat ginger beer man. I could almost taste the pear and the preserved apricot which I had eaten in the arbor at Colbrook Park with Jacinta and Dick, once more I made the acquaintance of Mr. Parsons in the train, which, if any, of these were waking memories, which were feverish dreams, it is quite impossible to tell, but every day's experience seemed to be lived through again, and, at all events, at last I must have fallen pretty soundly asleep, and after I actually woke again, reality appeared like a dream, it seemed perfectly natural, after my recent adventure with Parsons, to meet Jason the and a lady, who, from the likeness, in a confused kind of way I imagined must be her mother, I fancy that I must have opened my eyes for an instant, and then, unwillingly, have closed them again. At any rate, as I sat on the seat, there stood Jacinta, much more gaily dressed than I had seen her before, with gloves and a sunshade, and high-button boots, but apparently taking no notice of me as she continued to talk very quickly and excitedly to her companion. They were still in the same position, Mrs. Westlake listening with a kindly, gray face. Jacinta looking almost as if she had been crying, when I once more opened my eyes, chapter XX, Jacinta, I murmured, and still she seemed to be almost a part of my dream, mother, he is awake, cried Jacinta, and Mrs. Westlake leaned forward towards me, I want you to come home with me, she said, but when I tried to stand, it seemed as if I should have fallen if she had not put a hand beneath my arm, with Mrs. Westlake supporting me on one side and Jacinthe on the other, I managed to cross the road to the nearest gate, where a hansom was hailed, and I found myself seated by Mrs. Westlake's side, while Jacinthe was perched on her knees. Probably I dozed off again the next minute, for the next thing I knew was that the hansom had stopped before the door of a large house, where a middle-aged butler carried me through the hall and laid me down on the dining-room sofa. Mrs. Westlake seemed to be holding a whispered conversation with a short, stout, rather elderly nurse, whose name was Harper, and presently she left the room, to return a few minutes later with a breakfast cup full of beef tea, after drinking which I felt very much better, a little later, 
the butler half led, half carried me upstairs, and I seemed to be getting into a deliciously comfortable bed, where I quickly fell asleep in earnest. I have an idea that Harper came to look at me once or twice during that night, and the next morning she took my temperature with a thermometer, but although she declared there was not anything the matter with me, I felt very tired, and not in the least sorry when she brought me my breakfast in bed. It was about twelve o'clock when Mrs. Westlake herself came to tell me to get up, and then Harper brought a dressing gown, which together with everything else in the room must have belonged to Dick, who was away from home on a week's visit. First of all, you are to have a nice warm bath, she said, and she led the way to a bathroom, where she had already made everything ready. The water was quite a foot deep and delightfully hot, when I had had a bath, and put on a summer vest, a white shirt. A suit almost new of drab tweed with knickerbockers, a collar and a decent blue and white spotted tie. I confess that I regarded my figure in the glass with considerable approval. If you're quite ready, said Harper, outside the door, you're to come to lunch. But first she led the way to what was evidently Mr. Westlake's smoking room. I fancied from his manner that he only half approved of all that Mrs. Westlake had done for me. He reminded me of Captain Dalton not because the faces were alike so much as because they both seemed to dress and speak in the same way. Captain Dalton had been dark-haired, and wore a mustache, while Mr. Westlake was fair, and his upper lip was shaven, but he also wore an eyeglass, and stood nearly six feet in height, appearing a little stiff before I knew him properly. As Mrs. Westlake led me towards him, she said a few words in French, and I knew that they referred to her own boy and the possibility that he might want friends some day. But still Mr. Westlake did not offer his hand, but only nodded and said, How do you do? Let us go to luncheon, he exclaimed the next moment, and I stepped forward to open the door for Mrs. Westlake. In the dining room I saw Jacinta, who at once met me with her hand outstretched. You gave me quite a shock in Dick's clothes, she cried. I am most awfully obliged to you, I said, turning to Mrs. Westlake. I I don't know what to say. The butler stood with his back slightly bowed, ready to remove a dish cover. Jason to shook back her hair, and looked tearful. Mrs. Westlake stared at the plates at her end of the table, and her husband put a pair of hands on my shoulders and pushed me towards my chair, facing Jason to, That's all right, he cried. Sit down and have a good luncheon. We will talk by and by. Continued on page 181. The Feast of Cherries. Readers of Chatterbox will remember a story which told how a child saved a German town. Here is another tale of a siege in which children played an important part. One morning, during the siege of Hamburg, a weary merchant was slowly returning to his house, with other businessmen. He had been aiding in the defense of the walls. So severe had been the fighting that he had not taken off his clothes for a week. He reflected bitterly that all his labor was in vain for by the following day famine would have compelled a surrender. Passing through his garden, he found himself admiring his cherry trees, which were loaded with fruit. The mere sight was refreshing, and a thought occurred to the merchant. He was aware that the enemy were suffering from thirst. How glad they would be of that juicy fruit. Could he not by its means purchase safety for his city? There was no time to lose, and he speedily made up his mind. He collected 300 small children belonging to the city, had them all dressed in white, and loaded them with cherry branches from his orchard. Then the gates were opened, and they were sent forth in the direction of the enemy. 
When the commander of the besieging force saw the white-robed procession passing through the gates he suspected some trick, and prepared for battle, but when the children came nearer, and he saw how pale and thin they were from want of food, tears filled his eyes, for he thought of his own little ones at home, as the thirsty and, in some cases, wounded soldiers receive the juicy fruit from the children's hands, a cheer arose from the camp, love and pity had conquered, the little ones returned accompanied by wagons of food for the famished citizens, and an honorable treaty of peace was signed the next day, for many years, the anniversary of the day on which this deed was done was kept as a holiday, its name being the Feast of Cherries, the streets were thronged with children, each one carrying a cherry branch, then they ate the cherries themselves, in honor of their brave little foreigners, the saviors of their city of Hamburg, too clever, Jim Brown stood at the farmer's door I want a job, he said, well, lad, have you done aught before, but Jim just shook his head, an idler boy he'd always been than any in the village scene, well, tell me now, what can you do, oh, anything, said Jim, oh, anything, said Farmer Gray, then looking hard at him well, drive these pigs to neighbor practice time they went, they're prime and fat, Jim drove the pigs from out the yard, but, ere they'd gone a mile, one pig went squealing down the road, and one towards a stile, and while Jim pondered what to do, the naughty pig just wriggled through, just then the farmer chanced to pass, hello, said he, what's wrong, and when he saw Jim's downcast face, he laughed both loud and long, my lad, said he, with knowing wink, you're not as clever as you think, see the bogle, torn to rags, the curious and interesting little ways of Ferdinand de Lesseps, the designer of the Suez Canal, gained for him the favor of many prominent Egyptian officials, when he was in Egypt, and he was often able to get over a difficulty and do a kind act by unusual means, among his duties was the inspection of a large number of convicts in the Egyptian galleys, some of these were political prisoners rather more than 400 unfortunate Syrians, who had been brought from Syria by Ibrahim Pasha, son of Mehmet Ali, the famous viceroy. The Syrian prisoners begged the French count to help them to freedom. De Lesseps had no real power to do this, but he had a kind heart, and did his best to procure the release of the prisoners. When, however, he mentioned the subject to Mehmet Ali, the viceroy shook his head. These men, said he, are my son's captives, and in such a matter I could no more handle him than I could handle the lightning, de Lesseps would not be put off, Mithinet, impressed by his persistence, and wishing to stand well with the French, at last told de Lesseps that he would manage to get five prisoners released quietly every week, until all were free, he kept his word, and this piecemeal business of freeing the prisoners began. But very soon de Lesseps' house was besieged by the relatives and friends of the Syrians still imprisoned, all begging him to use his influence to get their own special friends included in the next batch to be set free. The anxious folk thronged round the Frenchman, and in their eagerness plucked at his sleeve and tore it. He resolved to turn this fact to account with the Viceroy. He had an old suit of clothes torn into actual tatters, and wore it upon his next occasion of seeing Mithinet. Mithinet was naturally greatly astonished at his friend's strange appearance. What on earth has happened to you? said the viceroy, in arranging that five of those prisoners should be freed each week, replied de Lesseps. You have made me the prey of the relatives of those who yet remain in the galleys. The number of the Syrians was four hundred and twelve, therefore your highness can easily reckon up and tell how long I must go in rags. 
The Viceroy was highly amused with the serious and pitiful look which Dulasips put on as he said these words. After indulging in a hearty laugh, he gave orders for the immediate release of the remaining prisoners. Thus, by his ready wit, Dulasips persuaded the Viceroy into an action which he would never have done if asked plainly at first. E.D. White Negroes, have you ever heard of a white Negro? Perhaps you will laugh at me for asking the question, but there really are such people in the world, and travelers and missionaries have met with them. I do not mean to say that there are whole tribes of white Negroes in some far-off countries, which are not often visited by travelers, but that, scattered among all or nearly all the black races, there are individuals who are white. These persons are like the rest of the tribe in size and shape, they have the same features, and the same kind of hair, but their complexion is white. Their hair is either quite white or straw-colored, and their eyes are lighter in shade than those of their companions. Dr. Livingstone met with several of these white natives in some parts of Africa, while in other parts he never saw any. One of these strange people was a young boy, a very fine, intelligent fellow, of whom his mother was very fond. His features were exactly like those of his parents, who were both black. His woolly hair was yellow, and the pupils of his eyes were pink. His father looked upon him with horror, very much as an English father might be expected to look upon a black child, and he treated him always as an outcast. The great traveler knew others, both men and women, who were quite white. Their skins were always very sensitive, and the heat of the sun blistered them very much. One of the white women, perhaps through a sort of shame for her color, was most anxious for Dr. Livingstone to make her black, which was more than he could do. A missionary who had spent many years in Fiji had met with five Fijians who were white. Three of these were grown-up persons, and one was quite a little baby, being only two or three weeks old. This baby's skin was much whiter than that of an English baby, although both its parents were young and healthy, and as black as any Fijian could be. The grown-up persons were as white as, if not whiter than, a weather-beaten Englishman, and their hair was flaxen, their skin was very smooth, and looked like a kind of horn, and it was cracked and blistered with the heat of the sun they like the skin of the white Negroes whom Livingstone saw. The white Fijians had pale blue or sandy-colored eyes, which could not bear the heat of the sun they and the poor men went about with their eyes half-closed. Similar men with white skins and white hair are found among the other black races which inhabit the islands of the South Sea. Among the red men of North America there are a few who have no color in their skins, and there are a great many who have light-colored hair. In one tribe a traveler found a great many men and women who had had gray or white hair all their lives. He thought this was a very strange thing, but had he known as much about other countries, he would have been aware that this peculiarity is found among the dark races in nearly every part of the world. White men are found not only in the countries already named, but also in India where they are looked upon with some amount of dislike by their fellow countrymen, in some parts of Africa. On the other hand, these white men are regarded as magicians, and held in honor by the rest of the tribe. Strange to say, not only are there Negroes who are white, but there are some who are patched or spotted black and white all over. I have a picture of such a Negro before me as I write. He is a native of Luongo, on the west coast of Africa. From head to foot he is spotted in black and white patches like a piebald horse, though in all other respects he seems a large, well-made, healthy man. I have also before me the picture of a spotted Negro boy, who was exhibited as a curiosity in one of the London fairs nearly a hundred years ago. When a Negro is white or piebald, 
it is because he has been born without the black coloring matter which other Negroes have in their skin. He suffers from a defect, and deserves to be pitted. The black color of a Negro's skin enables him to bear the heat of a fierce Sunday and, as we have seen, the Negro whose skin is white suffers much pain and inconvenience. A similar coloring matter in the eyes helps to shield them from the bright glare of the sunlight, and the poor man whose eyes are without this protection is compelled to go about with half-closed eyes. A boy's heroism. A true anecdote. A couple of boys were at once climbing about some disused scaffolding in a lonely place, when a beam on which they were standing gave way under their feet. Both fell, the elder a little before the younger, but just in time the elder managed to clutch another beam and hold fast to it. By a providential coincidence, his brother, catching wildly at anything within his reach, seized his legs, and the two hung suspended thus, with all the weight on the elder boy's arms. Before long, the strain became too great, and he called out to the other that they were lost, for he could hold on no longer, no one was near, and there was little hope that their cries would attract attention. Could you save yourself if I let go? asked the younger. I think so. Then goodbye, and heaven bless you, said the little boy. With these words he let go, and was dashed to pieces upon the ground beneath. His brother, thus released from the additional weight, was able to pull himself up to a place of safety. Insect ways and means, the how insects fly. The wings of insects are like those of bats and birds only in the work they do. In another respect they are quite different organs. The wings of the bird and the bat, for instance are formed from the front pair of limbs, but the wings of insects are formed on a very different plan from the walking limbs, of which there are never less than three pairs, the bat and the bird have only one pair of wings, the insects have two, though in many cases the hinder or second pair have been reduced to the merest stumps, or vestiges, as they are called, in other words, they are all that is left of a once useful pair, the butterfly has two pairs of wings, the fly is a good example of an insect which has but one pair, the stumps or vestiges of the second pair can only be found after careful search, but these vestiges which are known as the balancers have a new use, and probably act as organs of hearing as well as to guide the flight, the butterfly uses both pairs of wings in flight, the beetle only the hinder pair, the pair that in the fly are only vestiges, the front pair of wings in the beetle form hard horny cases or shields for the protection of the hinder wings, which lie beneath them when not in use. The wings of insects are often brilliantly colored, and this color may be caused in two very different ways. Generally the colors of the wings are due to the way the surface of the W.I.